1: From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Freitzis. Thank you for listening. This season is known for graduations. Perhaps you know someone about to celebrate that milestone. For Atlanta, Mary Frances Early, Graduation was an achievement beyond her stellar grade point average, as she was the first black graduate of the University of Georgia. The title of Mary Frances Early's memoir, The Quiet Trailblazer, acknowledges that though her name may not be famous, her role in the civil rights movement is monumental. We'll learn more about her remarkable life later in the program. First, after two years of concert silence due to the pandemic, many musicians have finally reached the other side and are back performing on stages across the world. Among them is guitarist Pierre Bensuzan, On March 12th, 2020, he was supposed to be our guest on City Lights ahead of his Atlanta concert. And then the world shut down. Now the Algerian-born French-Algerian guitar virtuoso is back on tour for his long-awaited CD, Aswan. He joins us now via Zoom After a long postponement, Pierre-Ben-Suzanne, it's great finally to welcome you to City Lights.
2: No, I'm thrilled. Thank you for having me, and I'm glad that uh, we are both very stubborn.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Persistent. We like
2: to think persistent. We are persistent, exactly.
1: You performed in our area at? Eddie's Attic in March.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: How did it feel to perform in Atlanta, the very concert you were supposed to have played two years ago? Was there something surreal about it?
2: Eddie's it Attic, one was. it was a very, very few shows I was able to do two years ago. So, You know, I had, um, in 2020, had 110 concerts lined up. I was going to promote my new album as one. I was going to tour for five months. And after the fourth show, and Hediz Hatik won one of them, I had to cancel everything else. So, in fact, Hediz Hatik won the the last before show I did two years ago before before the world uh, shut down. When I got back in March this year, it was amazing because everyone in the start there remembered that this was one of their very last concerts they did also, you know. So, you know, to play in front of an audience today and to tour this country and to give a a chance to live music to be in our lives again is very emotional for a lot of people, including to me. And I can feel that people are very touch to be together again, to come out. Some don't come out again, some are still are still quite reluctant. You know, they are fearing that COVID could still affect them. So I respect that, of course, completely. And those who come again and those who are who who take the chance, who break the odds, you know, to to be a part of the show. And myself, we're having a delightful time really, you know. <laughs>
1: Would you tell us the story behind the title of your album, Aswan?
2: Well, when you hear it, the music of the word reflects to some places in North Africa or in the Middle East. It could be an Arabic word. In fact, there is an Arabic word sounding alike. And a lot of Arabic words have Celtic roots, mind you, you know, so it's funny because Aswan also sounds Celtic. the title of this new album, a notion of unity, of everything is connected together. And it was long before the pandemic that this title came about. What was amazing is that the pandemic has completely put that word into the light because the pandemic showed us how interconnected we all are, how uh, our planet is fragile and vulnerable, how we are all depending on each other. And in fact, in my title, I wanted to show just that, the unity, the, the fact that uh, we are all interconnected and that everything is as one.
1: Mm-hmm. Your music transcends genre and classification. How would you describe the influences that went into creating your own style of music?
2: And well, I don't know when, you know, I think it's ongoing process. As far as I can remember, when I played the piano, I was always fooling around. Once I had uh, done my lessons, you know, uh, worked and studied what my teacher wanted me to study, I fooled around and played all kinds of things singing songs, uh, whatever came to my mind. When I picked up the guitar, I taught myself how to play. And I went straight to doing my own things, you know, writing my own songs, writing lyrics. uh, uh, And then I discovered folk music and I mixed it with uh, the classical music I studied on piano. And then I, I went to British folk music and I started to listen to the guitar as an instrumental vessel. And it. I really had music in me that wanted to come out. I didn't know how to name it. I didn't know how to describe it. But as far as I can remember, my first record, which I did when I was seventeen, reflects just that. Half of the record is compositions already, and so then the, the the vein was between folk and classical, with elements of pop and jazz. And I think I just pursue that that track and. Uh, Try to find a vocabulary, musical vocabulary, which fits my own uh, sensibility and my own experiences. So, when people ask me, What's what music, what style of music do you play? I say, I don't play styles, I play music in my own way.
1: If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on W A B E. I'm Lois Reitzes, my guest. Is the French Algerian guitarist and singer Pierre Ben Susan. Let's talk about a few songs on Aswan. Mm-hmm. Angeles sounds jazzy. Yeah. Would you tell us more about this song?
2: So it has, you know, it's a contraction between the Balkans and Los Angeles. The Balkans, because I, I really care for the music there. I care for the arithmic, the different rhythms they use, and the way the music uh, person groups be, with those very arhythmic uh, tempo, like three and a half, four, like uh, you know, seven, eight. Musicians would understand what I'm saying. And Los Angeles because I love the, the smooth groove of LA, of the, the smooth jazz of LA and all that. And I grew up also listening to the soundtracks of the Romanian composer, soundtrack composer, Laszlo Chiffrin. Yeah, so, you know, it's a mix. and Laszlo Chiffrin was from the Balkans, you know, So and it reflects, completely reflects in, in, his, in his soundtracks. So, Balkan Jeleus, I, I think, contains both, you know, it contains the, the groove of L.A., which is very glamorous, and also this ex- excitement, a little bit uh, frenetic, that we hear in the music from the Balkans.
1: I like it very much. I also... Really enjoy Vodou.
2: Vodou yeah. Of yeah, yeah. From
1: the very beginning, you have these alluring rhythm and styles, maybe flamenco on display.
2: L'animal me il est dedans, <laughs> et d'un seul Il m'a mort, j'ai grandi dans l'arène avec les lions, combattu pour l'arène, moi le scorpion. J'ai parié sur ta bouche au jeu du désir. Toi contre moi, dans le noir. Sometimes, you know, you know, it's funny because I do love all those uh, musical idioms, you know. I. I I feel as a musician and a lot of musicians will feel exactly the way I, the way I do, we are sponges. We are not in our heart, we never look at music in genre. We look at music, everything that contains a musical universe within is dignified, is is worth giving it a listen, you know. So we are like, in fact, always fusioning sounds, cultures, roots geography together. This is what I I did for a long time since I was born, you know? And those things reflect in the music I play 60 years later. It's like things incubate for a long, long time sometimes. And they come out as if it was so natural, but they have been, in fact, in a sort of alchemy movement for many, many years. And when it comes out, it's fresh, it's new, it's ready. But it took, it took a while to grow. It's like a, a plant which has been, with seeds that have been very deep. And, and the plant took a long time to come to the surface of the earth. And I feel music for me is a bit like that. So in Corvodou, once again, it's a sort of collaboration between Eastern reasons, Celtic and Indian from India. Spanish, Hispanic reasons, you know. I don't, I cannot even say. I don't know. In fact, I don't even, I'm not even interested in naming it. Why should I name it? I did it. It's there. People can hear it. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, it's like if I could describe with words, maybe, maybe I would have a problem then because because the music is what we do beyond the words. This is because we cannot express it with words, that we do it with the notes and, and with all that abstraction of sounds and notes and reference and colors, you know? So that's my aim, you know? And I, of course, I totally respect the fact that when we are addressing to an audience, people, people need to see with words what we are trying to refer at with sounds and colors, but in fact, the words are just there for people to give them an incitement to go and listen. And once they listen, they don't need words anymore.
1: <laughs> well, you sing on the track of voodoo. What do those words convey when translated to English?
2: My wife wrote those words, and uh, those words uh, refer to a sort of devil that we are inside of us and that sometimes takes the lead. You know, it's like we choose to feed the black, the, the more obscure, obscure part of us. And sometimes we understand this is not the right path and, and we change and we decided to feed the light which is in us. And I think, I think me, I'm going to speak for me and I would never speak for anybody else. I have both in me and it's my complete free will to choose one or the other, you know, to be a good or a bad person. And of course, those two notions, I know them by heart because I have been in both. So I know now why I'm choosing one and the implication of choosing one. And so this this song is reflecting that. This song is reflecting that at the end of the day, we are in fact able to make a distinct choice of what we want to be.
1: In the song, without you, we hear scat, Why do you like to include this improvisational scatting in some of your songs?
2: Well, improvisation is just a a complement of the composition, in fact. It should not sound like an improvisation. Mm -hmm. It should sound like something which has been thought out and composed. used to say, he said, good music should sound like it's all improvised, and a good improvisation should sound like it has been composed. And another friend of mine, a a great jazz guy said, you cannot improvise a good improvisation. Those are notions which are very interesting because what is improvisation really? All the music I play comes from improvisations, comes from imagination, comes from letting myself Go with the flow and no barriers and no instrument, no limitations. Let's just imagine what we want and the sky is the limit. And then you take the things down to your instrument and you understand the gravity of what you are. You know, you have to, you are confronted with your limitations, your technical limitations. And then this is when, in fact, all the work starts, like you put in fingers and in arrangements, all your imagination, which has nothing to do with your guitar you know, with my guitar, it's just a sound. And my guitar becomes an instrument and as an instrument should be able to convey all my imagination. So this is what I'm trying to do, you know, to twist my guitar so that it it can contain my imagination. In without you and other parts, there is always a moment in a music where I can go and wander into unknown territories, you know, like Keith Jarrett used to say, I like to, to jump to an unknown territory and see how I react and what I do.
1: I read something you said about the symbiotic character, the shared experience of performing music. You said it's not a monologue. From the moment that someone is listening, they are making what he hears his own. What would you like to think Others experienced through your music, Pierre.
2: Hmm. I'm not sure, you know. I'm not sure because this is the way people hear music is so personal. It's very, it's very delicate to try to to name how people hear music. Of course, it's the reference are based on their experience, but the music already should contain within a sort of seed that's going to allow people to go in certain directions when they hear it and then they make their own story with it what i mean is that the listener is never only a listener the listener is extremely active in in fact the way we listen to music is like we we change We want to be changed. We want to have an experience with the music we listen to. We want to forget the present, the moment, our concerns, our preoccupations, our worries, our problems. And this is what one of the the art, which is music is really good for that because it really helps people to stand the day-to-day life and to also abstract themselves from the reality and go to another dimension. And I think the music contains all of that. So I try to to play and to write and conceive music that is going to sustain several listenings like you don't listen to music only once and if you listen to music five times and after the fifth time you say I don't like this tune anymore it's boring you know it's too predictable I'm not you know it doesn't do anything for me it's too bad so in fact music should be able to stand the proof of time and also to be seen at from different prisms, different angles, and still make sense from any manner you look at it.
1: Pierre-Ben Suzanne, thank you so much for joining us to talk about Aswan, and good luck with the rest of your tour.
2: Thank you so much, Lois. Thank you for having me, and all the very best to everyone out there.
1: Pierre Ben French Algerian guitarist and vocalist. His CD Aswan is available now. You can find more information about Ben and his North American tour on our website, wabe.org/citylights. In a moment. listen back to my conversation with the University of Georgia's first black graduate, Mary Frances Early. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. The title of Mary Frances Early's memoir, The Quiet Trailblazer, acknowledges that her name may not be famous, though her role in the civil rights movement is monumental. Mary Frances Early was the first black graduate of the University of Georgia. And when she joined me in January via telephone, she discussed what it took to get her to graduation day.
0: It's almost unbelievable because I was such a quiet person and I had always been a good student because my brother and I uh, had wonderful counsel from our parents love and respect and they taught us to to believe in ourselves and to do the best that we could because they didn't have the opportunity to go to college and so they wanted us to whatever the length of our potential was they wanted us to reach it and so they laid a good foundation i call it roots well the way i got there was i i begin my autobiography talking about my childhood experiences because my formative years actually led me to becoming a civil rights activist. And I've been called an unlikely candidate because I was fairly quiet. I I liked to talk, but I was not one who would, would be in the front line of a civil rights movement, but I wanted to be. And I was in my fourth year of teaching and uh, saw on the television black-and-white television with my mom. We were watching the evening news. I saw the riot that was happening at the University of Georgia, and we were horrified. I had known Charlene and Hamilton because the three of us actually went to Turner High School, which was the premier high school in Atlanta.
1: This is Charlene Hunter, later Charlene hunter Galt and Hamilton-Holmes.
0: Yes. I was so horrified that I had been going to, since I had finished college, after my first year of teaching, I went to Interlochen, which is a national music camp, because they had a division of the University of Michigan. And the following two summers, 59 and 60, I went to the University of Michigan. But I decided on that night when they were suspended, I said, that's not right. They can't do that. I'm going to transfer to the University of Georgia. And my mother looked at me and she said, are you sure? We just saw a riot there. It's too dangerous. And then she told me for the first time about the murders of four black people in Monroe, which was her hometown. She had never told me this before. And it was a horrific murder. And she said, that's why you shouldn't go because it's dangerous. And I said, mom, that happened 10 years ago. I was 10 years old when it happened. But I have to be on the active line. I have to do something about this because these Jim Crow laws are not going to go away. And I can help. I can go to school. I can't march on the line with students, but I can go to school. And so I want to do it. And she finally gave me her, her blessings.
1: I can imagine how terrified she must have felt for you. In spite of the Jim Crow laws, Your parents never taught you to hate, dislike, or disrespect white people. How difficult was that for you when experiencing indignity such as you write about attending a movie at the Fox Theater as a young girl with your brother?
0: It was very difficult. Because I was young, and I didn't understand why we had to drink the colored water and not the white water. I didn't see why, because the water wasn't colored anyway. (laughs) I didn't understand why we couldn't go in the front door of the Fox Theater and why we had to climb up all the stairs. But they drilled that into us that it was the laws that we should hate and not people.
1: Mm. Well, that takes a tremendous amount of grace, I think. Although it is remarkable that you did not want to return to the Fox Theater for decades. And in fact, it was a performance by the Alvin Ailey Dance Theater that finally got you to go back to the Fox in the proper entrance, I might add.
0: Yes. I was so happy to be able to do that. And I have been, of course, several times since. But I was really into my adulthood before I went back because that, that just meant to me that we were not accepted. We were less than. And I didn't believe that because I'd been told by my parents that I was as good as anyone as long as I had the potential to do whatever. And so when I went back and saw the Alvin Ailey dance troupe, that was just Oh, it was such a blessing, because at that time, they had several different ethnicities, people dancing uh, before then, and that started out as an all-black troupe. But it was so inspirational, and it gave me hope for the future.
1: Mm. And they have returned here, with the exception of 2020, every year since 1976. I, I know they consider Atlanta their second home. Yes. So you came from this wonderfully loving family, parents who instilled in you and your brother the importance of education from a very young age. Let's go back to some of those earlier years. Would you tell us about the beginning of your intellectual awakening with ethiopia at the bar of justice
0: yes when i was growing up my dad had a restaurant on Auburn avenue and it was right across the street from the Auburn branch library and i went there every day they paid me to stay out of the way and i went there and i read (laughs) and i read (laughs) and i thought it was a great way to make money yeah but i couldn't read a lot about history i mean i read black history I read and read, and I guess I should say Negro history, because that's what we were called then. But when our seventh grade teacher introduced Ethiopia at the Bar of Justice, she didn't tell us that the opposition was the white race and Ethiopia was the black. We had to get that knowledge ourselves. But Ethiopia was told by opposition that she had done nothing to make America great. And then uh, I was playing the part of mercy in the pageant, and I was the defense. And I called all of these people to sing the praises of Ethiopia, business, the church, women, the slaves, all of the people in the, the various wars, the 14th, 15th, and 16th Amendment. And that brought it all together for me. And I thought, oh, my God, we have contributed to America. And I I was just so proud. It it made a big impact on my life.
1: How did attending Clark College help prepare you for your career?
0: Clark College was a wonderful—I'm so glad that I went to an HBCU. I had gotten scholarships, offered scholarships at Spelman and at Smith College, but I didn't want to go to Smith because it was too far away, plus both Smith and uh, Spelman were all female. I wanted a co-ed education. And I went to Clark because my band director had taken me there as a senior, and I played with the band, and I was so proud that I could play the clarinet uh, with the band. And I decided that was where I wanted to go, and it was a wonderful choice because I received a stellar education there.
1: If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois is speaking with Mary Frances Early about her memoir, The Quiet Trailblazer. My journey as the first black graduate of the University of Georgia. Now, your love for music began quite young. When did you you first discover classical music?
0: Oh, that's interesting. My father had gone to, to World War I, and I don't know where he was deployed, but it must have been somewhere in Europe, and he must have, been, he must have gone to some cultural events because he was the one who instilled within, within me the love of classical music. We couldn't go to the Atlanta Symphony because it was segregated. And I wanted to go to a real concert, but I could not. And at that time, even the, the black students were not going, as they did later on, at a different time than the whites. So my my dad had us sit down on Sunday evenings, and we listened to the Bell Telephone Hour, which played classical music, like classical music. And I, I loved it, and I wanted to participate. I wanted to play in a band, but at that time, I, I couldn't because my school, E.P. Johnson, did not have a band teacher. It was the first Black school that was built for Blacks. And it was a very poor school in terms of amenities. So I began taking piano lessons at the age of eight or nine. I think it was eight. And my piano teacher uh, was upstairs from the restaurant where we had a restaurant. I loved taking piano but after two years, I had to stop because the teacher, Dr. Byron, would wrap me on, on my knuckles with a pencil when I made a mistake.
1: <laughs> not and good.
0: No. And so I decided I would have to stop. And my dad really was an amateur singer, and he wanted me to accompany him. But he didn't insist that I continue. He simply bought me a set up the International Library of Music, which includes a lot of music as well as theory and history and so on. But that was the beginning of my love for music.
1: And in fact, you played piano, sang, you played clarinet. You were multi-talented, and this revealed itself at a young age.
0: Yes, it did. I really wanted to teach because I was so inspired by my band teacher at high school, He was such a charismatic person and he took a personal interest in me because I didn't start clarinet until the 11th grade. And that's really why. And I was a good piano player, but I knew I didn't want to perform. I wanted to teach because my mother had been a teacher in a one room schoolhouse in Monroe. And she had been the top student in her 12th grade class. And so she was asked to take on that position because her teacher was pregnant and she couldn't continue to teach. So I wanted to be a teacher because I thought my mom and my band director, this is what I want to do, but I wanted to teach band. And the professor at Clark College, uh, the chair of the department, said, that's not what ladies do. You should teach chorus. Oh. (laughs) Yeah, women's rights were not very evident at that time. And I said, well, maybe I can teach both. And I did. (laughs) Now, you write
1: about visiting... New York City, experiences such as being a counselor at a summer camp in the New York area and taking graduate classes from the University of Michigan. You mentioned earlier when you would go up to Interlochen. And these accounts not only convey what rich experiences they provided you, but how liberating it was for you, Mary Frances, to be accepted as an equal among white people. You were surrounded by fellow music lovers, campers, camp counselors. It made me wonder why you didn't want to remain in the North. Why did you choose to stay in the south?
0: I wanted to stay in the south because I was born in Atlanta. I was not a person who came from another place. I wanted to stay in the south because I wanted to see it get to the point where we could have could be on equal basis. I was when I went to New York after my 17th birthday. I was so liberated because we could go to the the library, the main library, we could go to the art museums. I mean, it was just a wonderful reawakening for me. And I said, I'm going to come back one day. And so I did go back to teach at this camp. And it was as though people didn't care what color you were. Now I was for the first year, the only black counselor. I did go back a second year and there was another black counselor, but we were just friends. And that was so liberating. So I knew that it was possible for people to have good relationships and be of different races, and I wanted to see that happen in the South. And I wanted to be part of making it happen.
1: You made a powerful statement early in your teaching career when you took students on a field trip to hear the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. Would you please describe that event?
0: Yes. I took my 5th, 6th, and 7th graders to the symphony. And at that time, the white students went in the morning and the, the black students or Negro students in the afternoon. When we went, I was aware because I had been sent a program that the students would be asked to stand at the beginning and sing a patriotic song. It didn't say which song. And so we went and we were sitting there in eager anticipation of listening to some beautiful music And the conductor, who was Henry Sopkin at the time, asked the students to all stand, and we did. And then he began conducting the orchestra. And when I heard that it was Dixie, I told my students to sit down. And they didn't know how to sing it because I had never taught it to them. And they did. And when they sat down, all of the rest of them saw that we had sat, so everybody else sat down. And Henry Sopkin turned around while he was conducting and saw that we had sat. But he continued playing through to the end. But that was my, I guess, silent objection to the song, because it was an offensive song then, and it is still today. I was teaching my students without being, I guess, obnoxious, that this was not something that they should appreciate. And shortly afterwards, my principal brought a box of books that were to supplement the music books that we had that were old to my room. And I opened one of them and looked, and at the, in, on the front page in the opening, there was a picture of picking any children, picking cotton, and the song that accompanied was Dixie. And I told him, we can't, use, we can't use this with our students. And he asked me, what do you want to do with them? And I said, well, take them out to the playground, which was just a dirt pack pack playground, and we'll burn it. We'll burn the whole box. And we did. <laughs>
1: I'm sure that was the only time in your life you wanted to burn
0: books. Of course. (laughs) I love books.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Explain how you were, I'm quoting here, eventually accepted but not welcome at the University of Georgia.
0: Well, no, I was not accepted. It really got under my skin because the students would sit Far away from you in class and not even acknowledge your presence. But in my first class, which was advanced music history, the first test that came up was to be held before the the 4th of July. But the rest of the students in the class, I wanted to go ahead and get it over with, but they wanted to wait. And so we waited until after the 4th. And I studied and studied. And I really enjoyed answering the questions. It was a an essay test, and not a multiple choice. But I had thoroughly immersed myself in the questions, and I answered them all. And when the professor returned the papers, he announced the fact that I had the highest grade in the class, which was an A. And the students looked at me. I mean, you see, at that time, I think the prevailing thought was that blacks could not compete academically with whites. And that's why schools should not be desegregated. And I wanted to prove that. But now I didn't know, of course, that I was going to get an A or that I would have the only A in class. But it was probably because I studied during the holidays and and they didn't. But that changed. A lot of them, they would begin to talk with me in class, not outside of class. But that sort of broke down the wall of people, just all of them just ignoring me.
1: Oh, It is painful to read about how you were treated by other students, even by some faculty members at UGA, which, again, it just surprised me that you were even accepted, you were granted entrance at UGA, if you will, but you talked about The impact of that riot in 1961, when the undergraduates, Charlene Hunter and Hamilton Holmes, were on campus and students just got ugly and out of hand. And you write that appearances on the national stage trumped the deep prejudices of local men of power for a moment. So that sort of surprised me because I thought about, well, but look at the horrors in Mississippi and Alabama that came in the next two years. And yet here in Georgia, they were willing to relent and grant you acceptance, although not acknowledging your credits from the University of Michigan, which was a much more rigorous (laughs) program. Yes, it was. That was insult to injury. But why do you suppose these bigoted local politicians even cared about the negative national news coverage?
0: Well... You know, the University of Georgia is the oldest land-grant university. They had been severely criticized, even internationally, about the riot. And people don't understand that I was not admitted. It took them five months before they did, before they said I could come. They tried everything they could to keep me out. And so when Charlene and Hamilton entered, it didn't open the doors wide to everybody, not to me. There was an investigative report where they sought to find out if I had shoplifted or had an arrest or had an illegitimate child, just discussing things that I didn't even know about then. And I think it was May 10th of 1961, there was a newspaper article written by Margaret Shannon. I don't know if you remember her, but she wrote this article saying that they held a high-level conference at the state capitol where the officials, and they had to be the legislators and the governor, reluctantly decided that they had to admit Miss Early based on her good teaching record and scholastic record, or that Judge Boodle would order them to admit me and perhaps issue an injunction. They didn't want that to happen because that would, again, bring shame to Georgia. So it wasn't that they wanted me there. I was not welcome. And during the summer of 61, I was the only black student on campus, which meant that any vitriol that they had to throw at a black student was directed toward me. But I did not let that deter me because I was determined that I was going to stay the course because I was self-selected. Nobody asked me to go. I made that decision myself.
1: Mary Frances Early author of The Quiet Trailblazer. Her memoir recounts her journey as the first black graduate of the University of Georgia. More of our conversation in just a moment. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wright's thank you for listening. If you are just tuning in, we've been revisiting my January interview with Mary Frances Early, author of "The Quiet Trailblazer: My Journey as the First Black Graduate of the University of Georgia. Miss Early's memoir includes descriptions of some extreme acts of racism she endured. And here she explains how Dr. Martin Luther King helped her find strength.
0: I started going to his church, and he talked about all of these things. He talked about hate. He talked about love. And I got my strength each week that I went home. I got my strength from him to be able to go back and to take whatever. I mean, the only time I really retaliated was when I was they threw rocks at me going to the post office and I threw one back.
1: Yes, I love that. (laughs) I love that story. That sounds funny to say, but you please share with us your story about telling Doctor King about that incident.
0: Yes. I went to his church the next weekend and I said I have erred I said I threw a rock back because they hit me under my glasses and I was so irate and I am sorry and he said Mary Francis I would have done the same thing
2: (laughs) (laughs) I did not believe
0: him but he was such a personable person and he was so sincere in his conviction that all men and women could live together in peace and I believed him and I still do
1: well, and to even joke that he would have done the same and then tell you, well, you're human. It was such gorgeous consolation for your being ashamed of not being nonviolent in your response.
0: Well, I was thinking, I'm not that nonviolent, and I threw the rock back. I didn't hit anybody, but I mean, I was, I was angry. And, you know, it was a visceral, well, feeling, I guess. I just couldn't resist it. But I know that we should. But even today, I mean, this is the same thing. That's, it seems like we have gone full circle and come back to the same kind of thing that happens today with people being killed and uh, assaulted. And it's just wrong.
1: Oh, horrific. In a landmark ceremony at UGA, you became the first African-American to receive a degree from the University of Georgia. This was momentous, yet decades passed without acknowledgement of your achievements. Why were you under the radar from UGA and the media?
0: I don't know. I don't know to this day, but I'll tell you what I think. It wasn't that I was just the first black to graduate from UGA. I was the first black to graduate from any of the so-called white colleges and universities in, in the Georgia university system. None of the other schools had integrated. I think Georgia Tech integrated the next year in 62 or 63. None of the schools throughout Georgia had integrated. And I think that this was their way of getting back at me Uh, Because, I mean, I was not even, the the graduation was not even noted in the Atlanta Journal and the Atlanta Constitution at that time until six weeks after it happened. And of course, my thing is, Lois, I did not go to the University of Georgia to become the first to graduate. That was furthest from my mind. I went to help desegregate. And you see, the first students who followed me were graduate students. They came the summer of 62, and one came the spring of 62 when I took a leave of absence from the Atlanta public schools. So, you know, teachers needed to have the the security of knowing that they, too, could be accepted. So I wanted to be known and still want to be known as one who helped to desegregate. I'm proud of the fact that I was the first. It was a watershed moment when I got my degree, but I was swallowed up by all of those that were 600-plus Graduating students, and they didn't even see me. They saw my my family and friends because I had seventy four people who came to celebrate with me. But uh, I was invisible, and so they hid it. But why? I don't know.
1: Shameful. You continued postgraduate study as your rise to prominence in the Atlanta public school system was rapid. Mayor Francis, that could be its own book, <laughs> just what you did for the Atlanta public school's curriculum advanced music for all students. But I'm going to jump ahead because in addition to that, You have made a huge impact in the greater Atlanta music community, including the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. Would you tell us, please, about your role in helping to initiate the ASO Talent Development Program?
0: Yes, that was such a joy. I was working with Azita Hill, and Mary Gramblin, and uh, we had a committee, and it was the Action Committee, and the Action Committee was supposed to level the playing field for Black students or students of color to participate in the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra's youth orchestra, and because I was coordinator of music or director of music in the Atlanta public schools at the time, I played a major role in helping, I was co-president with Azita Hill in helping to develop that program, which has continued and has become a model for other orchestras across the nation. And I was so proud at the naming ceremony when a young woman named Zoe Williams played a partita unaccompanied. It, was, it just brought joy to my soul because that was 1993, I think, when we started. And the program has grown exponentially since then.
1: Yes. I'd like to close with a quote from something Dr. King wrote to you when you received your degree in 1962. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King wrote, you have done a superb job and brought the state of Georgia closer to the American dream. Mary Frances Early, thank you so much for all the work you have done and for being the quiet trailblazer.
0: Thank you, Lois. I have enjoyed it tremendously. Thank you very much.
1: Mary Frances Early, author of The Quiet Trailblazer, from our January conversation about her memoir, You can hear the full interview on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture, tomorrow at 11 a.m. The creator of the Atlanta Beltline Lantern Parade will tell us about the magic that's coming to the West Side Trail this Saturday. I'm your host, Lois Wrightsis. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta.